Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and grab a seat. Can we just put our hands together and thank our worship team and just that time of worship together. Welcome to Harvest. My name is Trey. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And um, I have been out for the past couple weeks. And I'm thankful for um, Pastor Micah and some of our team who has filled in. Um, but the reason we have been out is on the screens. We welcomed our first, or our, sorry, our second son into the world on Monday. And um, <clears throat> I just love him so much. His name is Maverick James Warren. So MJ, he's a little baller. Uh, but um, he is doing great. Him and Mama, him and Lauren are doing fantastic. And um, they are just living large. And uh, forgive me how I sound. I feel better than I sound. My firstborn, um, whenever Maverick was born, um, was with my parents up in Jacksonville. Shout out Jacksonville. And uh, they were, he was up in Jacksonville, and he came back with a cold. And he gifted it to me on Tuesday, the jerk. But um, I've been dealing with that, but I'm better. I just sound horrible. Um, but if you will forgive me, we'll move on past that. Growing up, um, I was always the kid that had a wild imagination. I don't know if you were like that or you see it in your kids who have just crazy amount uh, imaginations, but there was a friend of mine who we were both at my grandmother's house. Um, I think both of our moms were teachers and our dads both worked at the same place at the church and um, they had nowhere to drop us off so they dropped us both off at my grandmother's house and we were in the backyard and my friend kept on telling me how bored he was. We were, we're in the backyard, and he was just like, I'm so bored, I'm so bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. And so I just grabbed a stick, and I was like, let's play war. He was like, that's not a gun. I'm like, I snapped it in like a few branches. I'm like, next thing I know, I had a Glock in my hand. I was like, I just, I was like, I am not going to be bored in this backyard. And so I came up with the way of how to make it fun, but he saw the backyard as boring. We're starting this brand new series called Prisons the playgrounds. And just like me growing up, we were in the same spot, but we viewed it radically differently. And sometimes in life, when you think about a, sorry, let me, let me start. When you think about a prison, what does a prison have? A prison has walls, it has fences, it has gates, it has supervisors. But a prison is not meant to be enjoyable. It's meant to, as a punishment, it's meant to destroy joy. Then you got a playground. Let's think about a playground. A prison also has walls. It also has fences. It also has gates. It also has supervisors, hopefully. Hopefully when your kids go to the playground during school, there's somebody out there watching them. But this is meant to be enjoyable. But when you describe them of kind of how they're built and how they're set up, they're almost identical, but it's what you do inside of the walls and how you view yourself and, and life inside of the walls, inside of the fences, underneath the supervision. And that determines whether it is a prison or a playground. One is meant to be enjoyable while the other one is meant to be tolerable and just livable. And sometimes in life, whether it be our marriage, our job, our friend group, you insert the blank Sometimes what God designed to be a playground and enjoyable and life-giving has now become a prison. And they both look the same, and you're like, I wish my life was a playground, but I'm here to tell you it can be. Without ever leaving where you currently are physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, life can go from a prison to a playground. It can. I promise you it can. 
when the so I, I'm a big history nerd. I love history. My favorite subjects. Somebody asked me in school, "What's your favorite subject?" I'm like, "I love lunch and I love history. Like those are my two favorite subjects growing up." But when you think about the U.S. Declaration of Independence, it says this. Um, And I quote, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these, listen, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That language is specific on purpose, and I think it's a great mirror of kind of how we feel in our culture today. Life guaranteed. Liberty guaranteed. Happiness pursue it. Maybe you'll catch it. Maybe you won't. Life guaranteed, liberty guaranteed, happiness, kind of best of luck. So what it's saying, it is easier to guarantee life and liberty than happiness. Because happiness is something that eludes us. You're welcome to pursue it, but people often don't know how to find it. You know what is not just like running rampant in our culture today is just happiness. You get on social media, you can, you can see it almost anywhere. Our world, let, let's, let's micro-size it really quick. Our nation doesn't seem happy right now. There's odds, there's tensions, there's divisions, there's all these different things, and nobody can seem to find this elusive thing called happiness. But that's what everybody pursues it, right? That's what everybody pursues. That's the American dream. People show up and they want happiness. They, they, they desire to be happy in the greatest country on earth, according to the rest of the world. America can't even guarantee happiness, but yet we're obsessed with it. We spend X amount of dollars going on vacation to find happiness only to come back. And as again, it's like, it's like trying to grab smoke. You see it, you try to grab it, and you open your hands, and it's gone. We can never actually obtain the thing that we are killing ourselves trying to pursue and grasp. It's circumstantial and short-lived emotion at best. Which is why I don't think we should be pursuing happiness i think we should be pursuing something different something that's biblical and that thing is this word i like to call joy i was a youth pastor for a couple of years and i was a middle school director for a couple of those years and there was one time it was actually my second sermon i ever preached i'm up on stage and i'm leading this middle school ministry and it's not a small group and i'm not like that's not the point of it but it's not like i'm talking to like five middle schoolers i'm talking to 150 middle schoolers And one of them, in the middle of my message, raises his hand and, like, will not put it down. And he's on the second row. And he just keeps his hand up. And eventually I don't, like, I don't acknowledge him right away. Like, you try to just, like, maybe he'll put his hand down. Maybe he'll get tired. Maybe all the blood will come, like, out of his hand. And he'll just, like, go numb or whatever. He stands up in the middle of my message. And he goes, hey, Pastor Trey, Pastor Trey, Pastor Trey, Pastor Trey, Pastor Trey, Pastor Trey, like a true sixth grader. I was like, yes. What is your question? He's like, what is joy? You talk about it a lot, but like, what is joy? And I'm like, that's a great question, young man. Um, Find me after the service, a.k.a. I didn't know how to answer that on the spot, but I was just like, that's a great question. So today, let me help us define what joy is. So a biblical definition of joy, if I could put it into a phrase or a sentence that's that's, um, understandable, here's how I would define joy. Joy is this. 
Joy comes from an eternal perspective that comes from an intimate relationship with the one who never changes, and his name is Jesus. It's not the definition I think you were hoping for. I'm sure you were you're hoping for. No, it's this Disney feeling of emotional high that never dissipates and never goes away. That's joy, right? No, that's happiness that's short-lived and is emotion-driven. I'm talking about true, supernatural joy in the midst of trying circumstances that you can still have joy in your life. Here's how, it, you, here's how I would define it, and here's how you obtain it. It comes from an eternal perspective that comes from an intimate relationship with the one who never changes, and his name is Jesus. And during this series, we're going to walk through the book of Philippians and, and take a look at the truth that joy is something that we can all experience every single day of our lives. In every moment, in every situation, it's not circumstantial, it's eternal because it's spiritual and it's faith-driven, not emotion-driven or circumstantial-driven. It is biblical-driven, it's biblically given, it's supernaturally deposited into your spirit when you pursue Jesus. And so we're going to be in the book of Philippians throughout this whole series. I'm really excited to dive into this book together. And a little bit of background of what's going on in the book of Philippians. Context brings clarity. So to give you some context of what's going on in this passage, Paul is writing this letter to the church in a town called Philippi. Philippi, Philippians. Makes sense? Awesome. But Acts 16 helps us give um, context to how this church even started. So if you want homework this week, go read the, the Acts chapter 16, but I'm going to give you the Sparks notes, Spark Notes version really quickly. Here's what's happening in Acts chapter 16. Here's how Paul would start churches in these cities. He started a church in Philippi. He started a church in Ephesus. He started a church in Colossae. That's why we have the book of Ephesians, Philippi, or Philippians and Colossians. Uh, and it, 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 he starts these, these churches. What he does is he walks into these towns, and typically he would go and preach to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. What does that mean? He would go into the synagogues, teach the gospel, and help them understand a different gospel in the synagogues. And then he would leave there to go to wherever the Gentiles were, anybody who's not Jewish. So me and you, unless you're Jewish in the room, shout out. You got to get taught first. Uh, but he would go to the Gentiles. He would go to the marketplaces. He would go to the town squares. He would go wherever the Gentiles were. We're hanging out, and then he would also preach the gospel to them. So what was required of a synagogue was 10 men who studied and practiced Jewish faith. That's what it took to get a synagogue going. That was the requirements of that day and age. Paul shows up in Philippi, and there's no synagogue because there's not 10 men who practice faith. So there is no synagogue he can go and teach to. That means... There, there is less than 10 Christian men in this town. You take all the Christian men out of Harmony St. Cloud, yes, it's different, but it is definitely not better. And so this town is struggling. This city, it lacks spiritual depth and spiritual maturity. And so Paul goes to where the marketplace is, and he just starts preaching. And these women, one of them named Lydia, uh, gets saved. Now, this, this person named Lydia, she's a woman, she sells purple clothing. You say, what does that mean? Purple was the color of royalty so in that day and age. And if you sold purple clothing, you were pretty well off. So this woman had money to spare. She was a really well-known um, and uh, respected businesswoman. She comes to know and follow Jesus. She wins some of her friends to follow Jesus. So now Paul is discipling this small group of women. And next thing you know, some of the men start to gather around because they're like, hey, listen, there's some ladies over there learning about Jesus. Let's step on in. And then got face slapped with Jesus instead of the women. But they, they were like, let's 
let's get something going. And so next thing you know, Paul starts this church in Philippi, in Philippi because a couple of women gave their lives to Jesus, took the gospel seriously, and these home churches, and then next thing you know, this bigger church started to form in the city, and Lydia was the one who funded the majority of Paul's ministry in Philippi. But what's interesting about Philippi, it was the first modern church in the New Testament era that was planted in what is now known in the, in the, in the Europe and the European area. So this is the first New Testament church where the true gospel is being preached in Europe. Think about how many, how enriched Christian history is in Europe. Think about all the missionaries that have come from Europe, all the church plants that have come from Europe, all because a couple of women said yes to the gospel, said yes to helping fund this one man's ministry, and now the entire world has benefited from the fruits of this one little church plant in Philippi, a town where not even 10 men knew Jesus. Now was the birthplace for what is known as one of the as as a modern church it's wild to think about but paul is writing this letter to the church in philippi and by the time he's writing this letter the church is 10 years old it's growing it's bigger um, it's stable and when paul is writing this letter 10 years later now here's where paul is just to give you some context paul is sitting in a prison cell what did he do tax fraud no he didn't what is paul sitting in prison for Paul is simply sitting in prison because he was out on the street preaching the gospel. And the religious leader said, you stop that right now. And he said, I cannot stop. He continued to preach, and so they threw him in prison for simply preaching the gospel. What I'm doing right here, right now, is what Paul got thrown in prison for multiple times, might I add. And he never stopped. And he's writing this, this letter, this book of the Bible, to the church in Philippi. And you want to know what the theme of this letter is? Joy. Paul is literally in prison. And he is viewing it as a playground. And he's writing this church in Philippi about how to do the same. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So how do we know what we know how to pursue happiness? Cultural has taught us and lied to us well, but how do we pursue joy? What is Paul teaching us about how to pursue joy? If you don't take anything else away from the message today, please take this away. When you pursue Jesus, you pursue joy. When you pursue Jesus, you pursue joy. You want to obtain a true joy, a long-lasting joy, pursue Jesus. While the world is telling you you're incomplete and in need of something, I'm here to tell you it's partially right. You are in need of something, but sorry, you're not in need of something. You're in need of someone, and his name is Jesus, and we are incomplete outside of him. So when you accept Jesus and begin to pursue Jesus, you will find joy that is unexplainable even in the hardest of circumstances. So Philippians chapter 1 
How do we pursue Jesus? What does this look like? Well, I think this passage and the, the first couple verses in Philippians chapter 1. So if you have Bibles, turn there. Phones, swipe there. If not, it will be on the Sky Bible for your convenience. Philippians chapter 1. Here are a couple thoughts I have about how we can pursue Jesus even when life is difficult. What does this look like? How do we find true joy in the midst of unfathomable hardship and circumstances? Well, I'm going to start in verse number 3, reading through verse number 6 really quickly. He says this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. When you think about this, this passage, especially verse number 6, in the context of a whole of which I just shared with you, here's what Paul is saying. We have seen God do wonders. We have seen God do miracles. We have heard stories and testimonies of people experiencing extravagant things because of the gospel of Jesus. And he's not going to stop. He's going to continue to advance his kingdom. He's going to continue to advance the gospel. I don't know if you know this, but God is not sitting up in heaven going like, I wish they would stop building the church. <laughs> like he's for it and he's saying, and the gates of hell cannot withstand against the church of the living God. He's just looking for an army. He's looking for people who are saying, like Lydia said, like this group of women said of like, we'll reach the town, we'll reach this community. Here's what Paul is not saying in this passage, and this is what it can get misinterpreted to. This is what it, sometimes when you see, like this is like the coffee cup Bible verse that can get taken out of context a lot, but it just comforts our soul. Here's what Paul is not saying. Go sin, do whatever you want, and God is going to use it to do amazing things. Here's what Paul, or here's what Paul is not saying. Here's what God is not saying. Yes, live a really apathetic Christian life, and God will use you to bring revival to a town. Because he who began a good work in you will finish it. So I'm just going to keep on sinning. God said he'll finish it. He'll complete a good work in me because he began it. So I'm just going to keep on sinning, and it's God's job to put the, the, the shepherd's staff around my neck, pull me out of frame, and he put me into a new chapter of life. But I'm just going to keep on sinning. That's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not what, what God, that's not the intention of this passage. What Paul is saying is that when you pursue Jesus, when you are attached to the vine of Jesus, he will produce something and do something in you that radically changes you and the community around you. And when you are pursuing something that is bigger than you, and you're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how this church is going to grow. I don't know about this, this vision of harvest to plant 40 churches down the spine of Florida into the towns that are growing but most often overlooked. I don't know how we're going to do this. This is a vision bigger than myself. Well, I'm here to tell you that when we are walking in step with Jesus, my job is not the outcome. My job is obedience. God's job is the outcome. And so when I'm following Jesus, my job is not the outcome of the health of my family. My job is to be obedient. It's to call out the imperfections gracefully and lovingly, but it's God's job to change their hearts, not mine. All I am is a messenger. And so that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't go and do whatever you, 
Paul is not saying go and do whatever you want and God will do something great through you. What Paul is saying is stay attached to Jesus because when you're attached to Jesus, miracles happen. Unfathomable things start to change in your soul. It's, it's, it's amazing what happens. So Jesus finished what he starts and he knows how it ends. He, he, he finishes what he starts, the miraculous, the miracles. He, whenever you are following Jesus, he, he doesn't just start to do something in your life and then step out. Jesus will never abandon you. It's when you stop acknowledging him and start to walk down this path, Jesus goes, I will let you. I will let you, but it's like the prodigal son, I will let you go. But I will never leave you nor for abandon you. Because when you think about the prodigal son, you know it never changed. No matter how far away the son was from the father, the relationship. that He was still the son and he was still the father. Jesus finished what he starts and he knows how it ends. How does this bring joy to my life, Trey? How does this, because all I got to do is walk in obedience and God will do the rest. But here's also the second part of this thought, and he knows how it ends, meaning this. My confidence is not that I've got life, my family's life, or the world figured out. My confidence is that he does. He knows where to lead me. He knows what my son will need long, when I'm long gone. When I'm long gone and my son has sons, my son has children, when I leave this earth and depart from this earth, God knows what my son will need long, long after I'm gone. God knows what your family needs before you even recognize the need. God knows how the story ends. He knows, he knows what my neighbors will need long before I move beside them. And what relief and joy that brings me. That I don't have to figure this thing out. I've just got to walk in obedience because God already does. There's a reason God's word says he is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. It doesn't say it's a spotlight into my future. It says I'm going to take this next step of obedience. It's a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I'm going to take this next step of obedience. That's joy. It gives us a sense of relief of God knows what he's doing. I'm going to walk in obedience. He has it all figured out, and he will finish what he starts. Second thought is this. Jesus is faithful along the journey. We continue on in Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. It says this. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is again, let me remind you, writing this letter from prison. And this isn't the modern day prison system. It's gross. It's disease ridden. Most likely he is bleeding from the chains, rubbing up against his skin. The majority of people who went to prison in this day and age never made it to their sentencing because they got caught with a sickness that they could not overcome because they refused medical help. And Paul is writing about the faithfulness and the goodness of God in prison. How often do we preach about and talk about 
God is good. He is faithful. Like, God is amazing. Y'all, if y'all only knew about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of Jesus, you would never return. I'm here to tell you, if you just knew and understood and experienced what I have experienced, gas prices go from $2 to $4, and we're just like, I can't do this anymore. I don't know. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned this country? I can't do this. And we just crumble. It's when we already know that corrupt people that are corrupt, that are in the political power, act as if they are corrupt and do corrupt things. And we're like, how dare they? God has forsaken us. But what if we took on the attitude of Paul? And here's the attitude of Paul. And here's something I want to remind you is this. Our ultimate hope is greater than our immediate fears. Our ultimate hope in Jesus is greater than our immediate fears. I think of the story of Moses, and if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. Moses, in the book of Exodus, the Israel nation were literally slaves to a nation of Egypt. They were fed very little. They were whipped and punished daily for not meeting quotas that they obviously had already met. But they wanted, Egypt wanted the people of Israel to know who was in charge. So even if they did what they were supposed to do, there was still punishment. It was unfair, it was unjust, they were oppressed, they were literal slaves. And Pharaoh multiple times wiped out their a generation. When the Israel people were beginning to rise up and become too many in population, he would order the death of, men, of the certain men of a certain age group. In fact, there's one time where uh, Pharaoh, the nation of Israel, was going too much in population again. And Pharaoh had all newborn babies, two years or under, were to be slaughtered, taken from their mother's arms, Throats slit, slaughtered in the street. Horrific, horrific things. But there was one person that God spared out of that generation. His name is Moses. Moses grew up miraculously. His mother was fearful that he would be taken from her arms and killed. So she put him in this basket, sent him down this river and said, God, he is in your hands now. But I know if he stays with me, he will die. That basket ends up at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter in the river where um, she would go to bathe sometimes. And she opens this basket. It's a little baby. She adopts this baby, takes this baby as her own. Moses is raised in in Pharaoh's courts, and um, he ends up running away from his home. He ends up running away from Egypt. He ends up in this wilderness, and in this wilderness, he's a shepherd for 20 years. And it's this time where he's being a shepherd that one day he's out attending to his sheep and he sees this bush on fire, but it's not actually burning. It's this weird thing where it's on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. Like the leaves are still green, but yet it is on fire. Well, it's because the presence of God was there, and that's how he showed Moses he was there. So Moses goes before God. He takes off his sandals. He removes those because he's standing on holy ground. And God says to Moses, Moses, you are going to go back to Egypt, and here's what I want you to do. You're going to look Pharaoh right in the eyes, and you're going to say, um, I speak for the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrew nation, and he says, let my people go. That's what God tells Moses he's going to go say. And Moses starts to go, God, God, I'm not the guy for this. I'm not the man for this. You have it all wrong. You have it all twisted. You have it all backwards. Uh, I, I, I have a speech impediment. I, I can't speak really well. I'm just a shepherd. I, I'm a shepherd. I've been a shepherd for 20 years. Like, I cannot do this. And God speaks up. And he goes, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Were you there when I created mankind? Were you there when I brought forth this? Were you there when I did the miracles here? I am the God 
I am. I am the God who made the heavens and the earth. I'm the God that made you. So when I command you to do something, don't let your immediate fears outweigh our ultimate hope. So Moses steps out in faith. Yes, it was hard, but he did it. And that is where he found favor. That is where he found blessing. And I'm here to tell you that the same God who spoke up to Moses and said, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Were you there when I formed mankind? Were you there when I did the miraculous here? It's the same God that's looking at you and saying, were you there when I died on the cross for your sins? No, but I did it anyway. He died on the cross for you. He rose up and is gifting you the gift of eternal life. He is the one that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the one that in Psalms 46 verses 1 through 3 says, Though the oceans roar, though the earth quakes, though the storms come in with a mighty wind and destroy things, I am your refuge and strength. So in the midst of the unknown, you know me. In the midst of the unknown, I am known. I never change. I am eternally true to my character. That is where our hope comes. My hope is not who sits in the White House. My hope is not who is mayor of of our city. My hope is not in people. My hope is the one who sits on the throne and says, I am good. I know all things. And I'm here to tell you, we know how this story ends. Come life or death, we win. My hope, I have an ultimate hope that far outweighs my immediate fears. Are there moments where I hold my newborn son and I look at the state of our country and there's a little bit of uncertainty because I don't know how all of this is going to play out? Yes. But I'm here to tell you that God would not gift my son to us at this time unless he had a plan for him at this time. It is no accident that the author of life, the giver of life, gives life at generations at certain time periods. It's not an accident. God knows the outcome. He is with us now, and when you spend time with the one that sees all, knows all, has love beyond all comprehension, he changes the way you see things. So remind your own soul like David did. David in Psalms said, why are you so downcast, my soul? He's literally talking to himself. He goes, put your hope and faith in God. And let me remind you this morning, put your hope and faith in God, not our world not your circumstances, none of it. Remind your soul of God's faithfulness. And thought number three, Jesus, here's another reason when we pursue Jesus we find joy, because Jesus flips our struggle into a testimony of his strength. Jesus flips our struggle into a testimony of his strength. We don't have it on the screens, but a verse I want to read to you really quickly, verses 12 through 14. He says this. This is Paul. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Getting arrested, thrown in prison, limited amount of food, chains running up against his ankles and his wrists while he's writing this letter. It's actually served in my benefit, church. What? As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Listen to this verse. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
I'm going to remind you of this, and this is a truth that I don't think we preach about enough because it doesn't sound great, but it is true. Just because something is tough doesn't mean it isn't part of God's plan. When we signed up to follow Jesus, we did not sign up for a life void of hardship. What we signed up for was a comforter in the middle of it. What we, felt, what we signed up for was one who could give peace in the craziest of circumstances. That's the goodness of God. That's the redemptive narrative of Jesus. And this requires faith that even in the storm, I am where I'm supposed to be. American church recently has done a horrific job of teaching us that. We think that when we're going through hardships, we must be outside of God's plan. I'm here to tell you, you can be in the middle of the storm and right where God wants you. And that's why we're not chasing happiness. We're chasing Jesus. We're chasing Jesus. Are you chasing Jesus or are you chasing happiness? One will deliver and one will not. One will leave you exhausted and one will leave you hopeful. There's a story I want to end with this morning. And then it's in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 31. And it Really, it's a really powerful story, and I love this story, and it says this. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It'll be on the screens for you. It says this. The day when evening came, he said to his disciples, this is Jesus talking, let us go over to the other side. They're on one side of a sea, and they need to get to the other. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, and just as he was in the boat, there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, a storm, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet and be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid do you still have no faith and they were terrified and asked each other who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him do you know how many times in scripture that jesus panics where god is taken back by news or circumstances do you have many times in your story where you do something or something happens to your family that god is like okay i didn't not see this coming. <laughs> Never. Never once in the course of human history since the day of creation has God been taken back or surprised. In the storm, God is asleep. The disciples are panicking. They have these buckets and they're trying to get the water out of the boat. It's crashing over them. They think they're going to die. And he looks at them and he goes, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They had more fear that the storm would end them over their faith and confidence that their Savior was with them. 
Are you fearless or faithless in your faith? Why are you more fearful? Could it be that you've been trying to get out of the water in your own understanding and your own strength and you're exhausted and you can't fight the world anymore? Could it be that you're exhausted of trying to make sense of the politics and the culture in which we live in and yet there is no rhyme or reason to the brokenness and madness? Could it be that somebody else's family member got cured of cancer and yours passed away and you cannot figure out why? And you're exhausted of trying to figure out how a good God can let bad things happen. You must not be in his plan, right? And Paul could have counted his losses in prison and stopped. I'm saying, I'm done. I'm preaching the good news, and yet I keep getting arrested. I keep getting thrown in prison. I went from a wealthy man to a poor man. I went from a man who had a mansion to a man who has no place to rest his head because I have no home. Paul could have licked his wounds, taken his losses, been a follower of Jesus, never preached the gospel again, never had another cost again. Been like, yeah, this, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, really, what do you believe about him? I don't really want to get into it right now because I don't want to offend. I don't want there to be any struggle. Like, I just, I don't, I just want to go through my life. Just let me, just let me check out of this Publix with my ice cream and get out of here. Stop asking me. But this, that's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul, and what God is saying is this, that his chains actually helped him proclaim that God is still good. That he is still full of joy, even in a prison cell. What happened whenever Paul was fearless in his faith? People came to know Jesus which grew Paul's joy and fearlessness. When we go through hard times, but our eyes never get distracted or taken off of Jesus, it is a testimony to the rest of the world that this faith is not circumstantial. That we are not overwhelmed by the immediate because our hope is in the ultimate. Let me tell you something that requires this word called faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith as this. It is the things that we hope for, but it is the evidence of things not seen. Do you know what that means? It means I don't see God physically. I've seen his hand in some things, but if you're like, hey, Jesus, come on out. Here he is, y'all. That's not how it works. Hey, spirit, fill the room with, with haze and smoke right now and rest heavy upon us. Is there a tongue of fire above my head? Is that how this works? That's not how this works. It requires faith. Faith. That when I pursue Jesus and I give up on this silly notion of trying to pursue happiness, but I pursue Jesus, here's what I find. I end up with joy. That when I pursue Jesus, I end up with peace. That when I pursue Jesus, I become fearless in my faith instead of fearful in my faith. In your life right now, what are you pursuing and what are you hoping it delivers? Pursue Jesus and you pursue joy. 
Pursuit, that, pursuit, that's a funny word, is it not? When we talk about pursuing Jesus, sometimes I have this, I don't know why, but growing up I had this mindset of like, oh, pursuing Jesus means like he's running away and I'm constantly like running after him to like just like tackle him and be like, you're not going anywhere, I have you now, now I got joy. But when you think about the, the entirety of scripture, here's what it looks like. Since the garden, we left and we were the ones running. And then came the New Testament when Jesus came running after us and he died on the cross and he rose again. And this gospel, his love has been chasing you since before the foundations of the earth. Jesus knew your name before Adam and Eve were ever made. He knew what you would look like. He knew what your story would unveil. He knew it all. And he chases you down. And his love is still running after you as Psalmist and David in Psalm 23 said, Surely the goodness and mercy of God will follow me all the days of my life. Meaning this, no matter how far I run, no matter how fast I try to escape, I can still turn around and see, but God, you are still here. You're present. You've never left. And not just your presence, but where your presence is, there is freedom, there is love, there is joy, and I can't escape it. So what does a healthy relationship look like? What does a healthy marriage look like? What does a healthy dating relationship look like? It looks like this, and you know this to be true. It's when you pursue each other. And that's what Jesus is asking from you and from me. And when he says to pursue him, He's not saying he's trying to escape. He's saying he's also pursuing you. So let us enjoy and benefit from this mutual pursuit called an intimate relationship with Jesus. Our lives would radically be different. Oh, our circumstances may not change, and I'm here to tell you that's okay. If you leave here and your circumstances never change, life is still hard. I'm here to tell you, you may not be outside of God's plan. Your life will be a beacon of hope because here you are in chains and what everybody else considers a prison. And you're like, no, this is a playground. I have faith that my God will do the miraculous. Oh, even with my chained arms, even with my chained ankles, even when there is blood dripping down, even when there is disease ridden in this world, even when I feel sick to my stomach, I am still going to write a letter to the rest of the world that my joy is still intact because my God doesn't change. And I'm pursuing Jesus with everything I have. And when you pursue Jesus, you pursue joy. Pursue Jesus this week. And when you pursue Jesus, you'll be pursuing joy. And what is joy? Joy comes from an eternal perspective, from an intimate relationship with Jesus that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Will you pray with me? God, there's a lot of broken stories and homes in this room. A lot of them, if they're honest, they would say life is not ideal. Being in prison and writing a, 
a letter to a church and trying to be a pastor to a church from prison is an ideal. Not being able to see your loved ones or your friends or your community and just staring at four walls with no sunlight. Just having a candlelight to write a letter is not ideal. But to have a message of joy in the middle of that only comes from an intimate relationship with you. So church, if you're listening to me and you're in this room and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, that can change this morning. Where you're not, not only will your, will your spirit and this season change, but your eternity can change. You can spend eternity separated from God from here on out or you can spend eternity with God from here on out. And I don't know what your story is. I'm here to tell you, your story can change today. So if you want to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you have never done that in your entire life, and you want to make that eternal decision today. I'm going to say this prayer, and I just want you to repeat this after me. And again, God's word says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. So if you say this prayer and there's no belief, there's no faith, it's just empty words. But if you say, I'm believing this to be true, I need joy, I need Jesus in my life. Then repeat this prayer after me. You can say it out loud, you can just repeat it quietly in your heart. But just say this. Dear God, I come to you today admitting I am a sinner I have missed the mark of perfection, and I'm in need of a Savior. And I confess that Jesus is that Savior. I believe Jesus lived a perfect life, died for my sins, and that he is alive today. And I choose to follow that Savior for the rest of my life. I choose to follow you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Every head still bowed, every eye still closed. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, or maybe this is the first time you've prayed it and there's actually faith behind it, and you know today your eternity changed. Nobody's looking around, but would you just raise your hand? I just want to know how we can pray for you. Is there anybody like that in the room? Trey, today my eternity changed because I put my faith in Jesus. Is there anybody like that? Anybody in the room? Okay. For the rest of us, my prayer is that you do find joy. My prayer is that you do discover joy after a life of pursuing Jesus. It's the only way we get through hard times. It's the only way we get through this. It's the only way we go from a prison to a playground. The band's going to come and sing a song, and if you would, just stay seated, and if you want to sing, you can. If you just want to spend time in prayer, you can, but don't go anywhere until after we're done singing. we got a couple announcements, but would you just take this time, this moment, in the presence of God our Savior, confess things that need to be confessed, acknowledge things that need to be acknowledged, and just praise God because he is enough.